later in Macro Sunday. Mikkel, on, on a serious note, um, when we're talking about spending related to warfare here, yeah. um, of course, on a nominal basis, the US is the largest contributor to the Ukrainian side of the equation. Um, while we have less on an aggregate basis stemming from the EU, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, a country like Denmark, where we situated, uh, you're listening to Macro Sunday, hosted by Andreas Dino. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Macro Sunday. My name is Andreas Steno. I'm the founder and CEO of Steno Research. And each and every Sunday, we provide you with the hottest takes on global geopolitics and macro in this weekly podcast. And also towards the end, an actionable section on how to trade it. Mikkel Rosenwald, welcome to you. Thanks a lot. You're my partner here at Steno Research. You're um, in charge of our geopolitical offering, uh, and we have plenty to discuss um, around Ukraine-Russia this week, alongside discussion on the melt-up ongoing in financial assets. Um, oh boy, we've seen a cyclical repricing right, left, and center across assets this week, um, and it rhymes very, very well with how we've restructured the portfolio over the past weeks. So um, in that sense, the mood <laughs> is uh, pretty decent uh, this week, Mikkel. Remember that we've launched a free newsletter. Um, if you want a few macro nuggets a week, uh, access to um, free slide decks, free videos from uh, from Steno Research, um, please sign up. Um, we have left the link to the free newsletter in the description of the podcast in case you're interested. Mikkel, I guess NVIDIA uh, <laughs> has sort of been the center of attention Absolutely. last week. Uh, the AI wave is, to say the least, still ongoing. Um, and NVIDIA surprised everyone to the upside once again. Uh, what do you make of that AI wave and whether it's got legs here? <laughs> it, it's it's obviously got legs and it's uh, the, the the potential is, is just mind blowing. Uh, mm. And that's that's of course was of, of course what we're seeing in the Nvidia stock. I mean this uh, is, of, is of course uh, uh, a very solid, very solid annual report. But remember that that all these uh, growth expectation comes at a time where a lot of other companies are looking to get into the chips market as well. Mm. And despite of that. There's still huge confidence in NVIDIA, and rightly so, in my opinion. This market is going to grow uh, exponentially for the coming years, and 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 that's of course, of course, what's uh, what's layered into the 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 cost of NVIDIA right now. Yeah, and Miguel, we've had plenty of questions, uh, both from hedge funds, uh, asset managers, and so on and so forth over the past week around the client base of NVIDIA. Who the hell are buying all of these <laughs> GPUs? Yeah. Um, and I guess the short answer is Microsoft. <laughs> yeah, and very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Google, yeah, yeah, yeah. All the big players are, uh, are buying this stuff. All the big players, I suppose, have or I expect have plans. We have heard about some of them, OpenAI, etc. Have plans to produce this on their own, but there is a very long, uh, a very long prospect for them to 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 get their own supply chains up or separate supply chains. So. For right now, Nvidia owns this market and and, and are going to for the for the next couple of years. Yeah, uh, it's as simple as that, basically. So, is this 
cyclicality in the NVIDIA stock and in the demand for GPUs a sign of an improving global economy? That's really a key question right now, because if you look at um, the global trade of semiconductors, for example, basically a gauge of the demand for AI, you could argue, um, those measures are absolutely through the roof. Uh, we're talking about increases, for example, in Taiwanese and Korean exports of semis of, say, 75% to 100% on a year. Um, but it, is this a, a symptom of a broader pickup? Uh, that's kind of where markets are leaning right now, yeah, but it's not, yeah. it's not given yet. No, uh, within within these sectors, absolutely, is it a sign of a broader pickup? I'm not, I'm not too sure of that. W what we're seeing right now in some countries, especially the US and China, is the semiconductors have been put into the strategic element or the the, the strategic group of, of commodities, basically, mm. of goods, uh, and that means that uh, while oil is becoming less of a strategic uh, a commodity, especially for the US, the US is emptying their oil oil uh, oil stocks, basically. Mm. Um, they're beginning to stock up on semiconductors. And that's part of what we're seeing. We've never seen that before. People would usually buy semiconductors and use them right away because if, if you kept them in a warehouse for, for a year and a half, they would be outdated. Uh, that's still the case, but people are still, but, but the U.S. is beginning to, to view this as a strategic resource and thus beginning to to, to think about stockpiling uh, these semiconductors for military use, et cetera. That's also what's driving up prices, and that's a very much an isolated uh, uh, issue, I believe. Yeah. There are... I'd say f a few signs of a broader pickup outside of semis and AI related stocks right now. Um, we've had the PMIs uh, and the IFO survey uh, out from Europe over the past week, kind of a mixed bag of goodies, but I think it's relatively safe to say here that the bleeding has stopped. Uh, we see progress in France uh, for the first time in a while. Um, and the cocktail in both the French and the US PMI um, was actually pretty decent when you look at it from a business outlook relative to a price outlook perspective. Input prices are down um, on everything related to the production of goods, while the business outlook is improving, albeit from, from weak levels, but it's improving. Uh, and it's essentially why we've taken a decision to tilt everything uh, in a pro-cyclical direction in our portfolio. So far, with great timing and great luck, um, we've conducted a study on how to trade the cycle across assets. We've looked at how various asset classes price in uh, the business cycle, so everything related to manufacturing. Um, and we find that cyclical FX pairs look cheap. We find that many commodities look cheap. And we find that equities related to the cyclical part of the economy. So basically the manufacturing of goods look cheap. Um, if you want to, to uh, see the entire study, you can either find it on stenoresearch.com or sign up to our free newsletter. Uh, and we'll provide you with this slide deck on the beta studies across asset classes on, on assets that look cheap uh, relative to the business cycle here, because as far as we can judge forward-looking indicators, they're improving also outside of AI. But Mikkel, the situation for the Ukrainians is not improving. Um, we've heard stories over the past week of Russia making progress. Um, I even saw, I think it was in Wall Street Journal, an article suggesting that Russia could march towards Kiev again. 
Do you buy into that notion, or uh, no. where do we stand right now? No, no. I mean, uh, right now Russia has the initiative. They had so last winter as well, and and it's 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 emphasized, uh, of course, by their by the upcoming election in Russia. We can get back to that a little bit. Uh, there's no doubt that Ukraine uh, has lost the initiative. They've lost the ability to to carry out major offensive operations, mainly because the Russians are too well dug in along the front line. They are relatively well equipped. They are able to replace the losses, and they're able to keep up high, high high levels of losses and that means that Russia can keep and this may sound cynical but Russia can keep investing uh, 20.000 casualties a month into the in, in into operations and that is basically the 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 calculus that they're doing right now uh, Ukraine had the strategy for most of 2023 to to bleed out the Russians to let the Russian take so many casualties that at one point the Russian electorate would would or the Russian elites probably would, would would grow tired of this, but Putin and his his system has has managed somehow to keep replacing all these losses. Uh, losses are uh, in excess of three hundred and fifty thousand over the course of the war, uh, at least one hundred and fifty thousand dead uh, of those. No other country on earth, perhaps India and, and China, they haven't really been put to the chest to, to the test on that. But no other country on earth earth could could stomach such losses. But Russia, uh, and that leaves Russia in quite a good position because they have strategic patience. They're okay with how things are at the moment mm-hmm. because they're basically keeping Ukraine in a deadlock. Their economy is, uh, depending on how you look at it, doing okay. Uh, you shouldn't put put put. Uh, too much value into GDP growth over there because the GDP growth is basically spent on missiles that are burning in Ukraine. So it's not really making anyone richer. No, but still, uh, and 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 most of the GDP growth, of course, comes from government uh, government borrowing. But they don't have too much uh, government debt. They can keep borrowing in China if they want. So 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 Russia is set for a long war. They have the men, the weapons, the money to keep a long war going, um, at least until Vladimir Putin dies. And that 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 leads me to to sort of the the only two people who can right now force Vladimir Putin or force Russia to the negotiating table. Uh, it's two people. It's God and it's Xi Jinping. Uh, that's basically what we're looking at right now. Uh, and that's also why. I mean, in the West, there's a lot of debate about should we try and negotiate. I don't think Putin wants to negotiate. Why should he? He's in a very good position. This allows him to to strengthen his grip on the Russian society. Why should he negotiate right now? Um, the support for Ukraine, we can get maybe talk a little bit more uh, more about that. It's still, uh, it's, it's, it still looks very difficult in the U.S. to keep up support for Ukraine. And even if 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 Biden and 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 and, uh, and Congress is able to pass one bill, that's probably going to be the last major bill for Ukraine, especially if Trump wins the presidency. So we are looking at a rather bleak uh, picture for Ukraine uh, regarding U.S. support. The EU support is still there. Uh, EU is still investing, especially uh, our home country, Denmark, is still investing heavily in, mm. in Ukraine. And I think it's it's dawning on, on European nations that they have to take responsibility for the Ukraine war, basically. The thing is, though, even if EU can supply all the munitions and all the weapons and all the money that Ukraine needs, at some point Ukraine is going to run out of men. Uh, and the EU is not willing to provide EU with men or women, for that matter, uh, yeah, to, yeah. To, to throw into the meat grinder. And that is the strategic dilemma for the EU, even if we can prolong the war for a couple of years. So uh, right now, it's a huge strategic dilemma for the West. I don't think Russia is going to be marching into Kiev anytime soon. I don't think Russia is trying to force anything here. They're slowly building up their initiative. Ukraine may go on the offensive t- this summer, but Russia is well prepared to to. Uh, to push them back basically so right now not a very good picture 
And Mikkel, when you refer to God as one of the uh, <laughs> two people able to bring Putin to the, to the negotiations table, yeah. I suppose that you mean Donald Trump. <laughs> um, so uh, as per usual, we have a soundbite from Donald Trump. Uh, and the soundbite this week um, is from Donald's visit to Saudi Arabia a few years back. Um, I don't know whether Donald was there as the president of the United States or as a snake oil salesman, but here is Donald uh, trying to to pitch uh, a few ideas to Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia. But if you look in terms of dollars, $3 billion, $533 million, $525 million, that's peanuts for you. <laughs> and and for those of you not watching uh, the show here, uh, Donald Trump is is sitting with a couple of pictures of of uh, American uh, fighter jets, fighter jets, um, and <laughs> saying that that's peanuts to you, Mohammed, and, and uh, I, I love it. Um, uh, Miguel, on on a serious note, um, when we're talking about spending related to warfare here. Um, of course, on a nominal basis, the U.S. is the largest contributor to the Ukrainian side of the equation. Um, while we have less on an aggregate basis stemming from the EU, basically, mm-hmm. um, a country like Denmark, where we situated uh, on on a per capita basis, we're paying way more than the U.S. But still, like if you aggregate it all, um, the U.S. is obviously the main contributor here. So. This guy <laughs> um, trying to to sell uh, air fighters to the uh, uh, Saudi Arabian administration here, he's typically in favor of asking countries to pay for it yeah. ex- uh, instead of the other way around. So, I mean, what if the U.S. administration pulls the rock from under Ukraine here once once Donald is back? That's basically the base case f- f- in, yeah. for bookmakers, right? Absolutely. They can pull the rug in two ways. First of all, uh, financial and, and with regards to the support for Ukraine, I think the EU will and and, and can, uh, perhaps not easily, but 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 relatively easily replace that. Uh, it's a matter of will, and the will is there in the EU at the moment. the The, the main issue for EU uh, for for the Euro- European Union in, in in that regard is simply the, the lack of production capacity. Because uh, as as this clip shows us, we're used to buying all the stuff in in the US or, or a lot of our weapons, and right now the EU is is, is Trying to scramble to 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 increase the the production capacity of military goods within Europe, basic rearmament strategy. Right now, EU is being outproduced by by North Korea, as we've mentioned before here. So 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 that's the next step. And I mean, yeah. uh, how's that going to sit with Donald Trump? I mean, he wants us to spend more on on the military because he believes we're going to buy stuff from from Northrop Grumman and Boeing and what what have you. But if we produce ourselves in Europe, uh, how does that leave the the US? So. I'm not too worried about uh, the U.S. support slipping away. The EU will, to some extent, replace this. The political support uh, uh, is, is is more critical for, for Ukraine because I don't think Ukraine trusts uh, European support enough to keep the war going. So if Donald Trump calls Zelensky and says, I'm out of this, you have to sue for peace, Zelensky has to do something about that. Uh, he can't simply rely on the EU uh, on, on, on the grander political scheme of things because the EU has no leverage over China. Donald Trump is the only one who can call Xi Jinping and maybe get some sort of deal done. Yeah. And, uh, Mikkel, the cocktail of um, rising cyclicality mm. in the global economy, rate cuts in China, we haven't mentioned those uh, yet this week, uh, substantial rate cuts, that is, and this continued turbulence around geopolitics and the ramifications for glo- the global financial system, that 
trio of themes spills directly into the crypto and digital asset market. Um, we've seen positivity in that market uh, after the rate cuts in China, typically a sign of capital outflows. Uh, we've seen positivity in that market around um, uh, the warfare in uh, in Ukraine, Russia, because it is kind of a proxy way to trade things across borders. Um, and we've also seen positivity in that market due to the rising cyclicality in the global economy. So I think it's time to invite um, our colleague um, and our head of cryptocurrencies, Mass Eberhardt, to the studio. Uh, and um, Mass wanted us to introduce him um, with the song from Zombie Nation called Kernkraft 400. Here it is. I am now joined by our head of cryptocurrency, Mass Eberhardt in the studio. Mass, great to see you. Thank you. You too. And uh, Mass, it's been quite the interesting uh, year so far for the crypto space. Um, tremendous returns, more or less, across the board. For sure. If you look at the trend in Bitcoin relative to other cryptos so far this year, what are sort of the main takeaways right now in the crypto market? I think the main takeaway is that for sure we got the Bitcoin spot ETF uh, back in the beginning of January. And actually what we have seen so far for, for the past month or so is that actually the, the net inflow into these ETFs uh, are much bigger than what we expected. Mm. So for sure, we had the first couple of weeks where the market was was disappointed by by the net inflow, especially because well, quite quite some some outflow from great the grayscale Bitcoin mm. uh, trust ETF. But then afterwards, when that outflow cooled down, we actually saw that especially BlackRock's uh, ETF, spot ETF and also Fidelity's spot ETF. Both of the uh, both of those have seen quite some some inflow in the past uh, few weeks, so it has pretty much been been Bitcoin um, uh, being in charge of the market this year so far. Mm. But also the market is also uh, starting to anticipate the the Ethereum spot ETF, which we will we expect uh, with a high likelihood will launch in in May this year. Yeah, and. If we look at the price patterns in Ethereum versus Bitcoin, we've actually seen Ethereum outpacing Bitcoin basically since we launched our portfolio. Yes. Um, 
and you have an overweight on Ethereum relative to Bitcoin. Is that based on the hopes of the Ethereum spot ETF or is it also grounded in fundamentals? So it is actually mostly grounded in fundamentals. Of course, we expect that we will see this ETF, which is pretty pretty vital to to be able to outperform uh, Bitcoin because Bitcoin's ETFs, they see so much inflow. Mm. So that's pretty vital. Uh, but not least, it is about the fundamentals. So instead of uh, having... And inflation, then Bitcoin. Uh, sorry, then then Ethereum is pretty much deflationary. You have much higher demand uh, for doing transactions on the network, and not least, also you have this narrative ar- around these uh, layer twos, also known as as rollups, mm. uh, which will is about to scale uh, Ethereum massively. So, Matt, when we talk about layer twos or rollups. I think for the sake of our audience, we need uh, to sort of define the difference between layer one and layer two here. Yes. So so, so what's the main difference between a layer one and a layer two token? Yeah. So basically what Bitcoin and Ethereum both are, they are what we call as a layer one. Mm. So they are the, the main blockchain itself. Uh, it is basically a blockchain. They don't settle their transactions to any other blockchain. What a layer two basically does is that at least on Ethereum they take a lot of transactions on their own uh, blockchain then they combine them then they made a make a batch out of those transactions and then they settle one transaction down on Ethereum so even though that one transaction on the Ethereum network is pretty gas heavy meaning that it is a pretty big transaction mm-hmm. then it maybe consists of uh, 500 transactions or, or, or 1,000 transactions on the layer to making them much cheaper. And Matt, when we talk about scalability uh, in relation to transactions, these roll-ups or layer twos, are they necessary to actually bring about the scalability needed for future transaction levels, for example, on Ether? Yeah, th- that really depends on who you ask. Mm. So the approach, the scalability approach that Ethereum has is around what we call uh, off-chain scaling, so meaning that that it relies heavily on layer twos. Yeah. Where, for instance, uh, another case is Solana, which pretty much only focuses about on-chain scaling. So that means that it tries to scale its own blockchain, so it tries to scale layer its layer one directly. Mm. But for the sake of Ethereum, then it is pretty much uh, crucial, at least in the short to mid-term. So... Currently, Ethereum has pretty much nothing in its scalability roadmap around uh, scaling its own layer one. Mm. But, but Mass, if um, if we look at actual statistics on transaction levels and tra- transaction fees, I know you track these things on a running basis. We've seen a major pickup in, in fees on Solana, for example. Yes. Um, so what are the major trends in relation to actual transaction and the fees on the major uh, chains here. Yeah, so this year so far, actually, it has pretty much been centered around Ethereum, mm. uh, Ethereum's layer twos, uh, where we have seen the transaction fees also picking up, and then Solana. Mm. So Solana makes about 500,000 uh, in daily transaction fees. In dollars. In dollars, yeah. yes, for sure. And then uh, Ethereum makes 
somewhere between 10 million to 20 million dollars in, in daily transaction fees. And some of these layer twos, they make about the same as, uh, as Solana. Yeah. And how significant is this discussion on transaction fees relative to the underlying price development? I mean, if I'm an investor in a, um, say in Solana or yes. in Ethereum, how important is it for me to track the actual development in fees? Yes, uh, we think it is absolutely crucial mm. to, to follow these trends because how we view uh, pretty much every cryptocurrency besides Bitcoin is that they need to have some fundamentals. So we we pretty much look at them like we look at different equities. So they need to have fundamentals. They need to have uh, a cash flow. They need to, to also turn over a profit sort of. Mm. And how they these cryptocurrencies can turn over a profit, they can have a what we could define as a cash flow is by having high transaction fees or generating a lot in transaction fees. So that is pretty much uh, how these blockchains, they generate revenue. Mm. And Mass, um, it's no secret that we've launched a crypto portfolio here at Stainer Research with, with you anchoring uh, the allocation strategy. Without revealing it all, um, what are sort of the major trends in your current allocation strategy for the crypto portfolio, then we can uh, allow people to go behind our paywalls to find yes. the actual composition. But what are the major trends in your current allocation? Yeah, so the major trends is that we are, or are that we are looking at cryptocurrencies with a cash flow. Mm. So we are only like pretty much evaluating cryptocurrencies that generates transaction fees mm. and also by generating uh, transaction fees, they also have a, a great de- degree of adoption. Mm. So we pretty much access the market as having an excess supply of block space, meaning that there are too many blockchains out there, too many cryptocurrencies, and the majority of those will never ever see any sort of network effect. Mm. So we only take cryptocurrencies uh, into our portfolio if they have uh, realized at least a pretty high degree of adoption and network effects. Yeah. And um, the aim is obviously to beat Bitcoin as a benchmark yes. in this portfolio uh, by scaling up and down in the positioning size relative to, to Bitcoin. Yes. But do you think there will there will be a time where you don't, do, don't have any Bitcoins in your portfolio mess? <laughs> uh, yes, maybe actually. Yeah. I think if we see uh, like a pretty much full-blown uh, 20... 21 uh, bull market, I think then we will uh, probably allocate even more capital towards uh, some of the other layer ones and then mm. layer twos. Yeah. Uh, and that will be uh, at the consequence of, of Bitcoin because we think then they will uh, outperform Bitcoin. Yeah. And we've obviously tried to to uh, map the beaters of, of various, uh, various cryptos relative to Bitcoin. Um, I guess the the length of, of the data series are not particularly long uh, no. so far and that therefore the study is a bit uh, fishy so far. But the interesting thing here is that when dollar liquidity improves, as we've seen, uh, when the cycle improves from a macroeconomic perspective, yes. as we talked about in this uh, podcast today, it seems like the risk-taking within the crypto space also moves out the risk curve in a yes. sense. Yes. Uh, that's kind of, kind of what we're seeing at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that was also what we saw uh, in 2020. So the year before we, we saw 
the dead point, uh, biggest crypto bull, bull run, is that pretty much Bitcoin starts this, this cycle. So mm. the capital starts to flow towards Bitcoin. And then after a while, when the liquidity picks up, when, when retail returns to the market, mm. then some of the, that capital flows into what we what we define it as, as altcoins. Mm. So the alternative coins to Bitcoin. Yeah. Mass, it will be super interesting to see whether you're right in uh, the launch date of a Ethereum spot ETF. Um, given the interest that we've seen in the Bitcoin spot ETF, it is kind of almost a promise for a success, if you ask me. Yes. Uh, once we actually get that uh, ratification of the spot Ethereum ETF. Mess, what are the signs you're following for clues on the timing of this uh, Ethereum ETF? And what are the expectations in the market right now around that timing? Yeah, so we know that the SEC, they, the US SEC, they need to either approve, reject, or then postpone uh, the application from, from a firm called Van Eck. And they need to do that by latest uh, 23rd of May. Okay. So, of course, they, they can either reject it, which I think is very unlikely, because if they will not approve it, they will, they will probably just postpone the decision. Mm. Uh, but I think it has been pretty clear that, that SEC, they also want to, to approve the, the applications because they did, which is, which is pretty much, the, the biggest sign that they are willing to approve it is that they approved the first uh, Ethereum, but not spot-based ETF, but futures-based ETF in October last year, yeah. and that is pretty much a sign that that they are they are willing to to approve the ETF, and also the fact that when they approved the Bitcoin spot ETF, they also acknowledged that market manipulation, which were like pretty much all the rejections were grounded in, in ma- market manipulation, that market manipulation is just as likely to happen in the CME futures as in the spot markets, mm. meaning that they have already approved a futures ETF, a, an Ethereum futures ETF based on CME futures. So they pretty much acknowledge that if market manipulation is to take place, then it will also happen in the futures market yeah. anyway. So that's not really a reason anymore to reject it. Let's see whether you're right that we get some uh, clarifications by the 23rd of May, if I heard you right. Um, It will certainly be interesting to follow. Mass Eberhard, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And uh, to those of you uh, watching or listening, please go to standardresearch.com to uh, to check out Mass's actual allocations in the portfolio. We uh, we teased this as much as we could here, uh, but the actual allocation is... um, reserved for paying members of the yes. research crypto offering mess good seeing you thank you we're back in the studio from the interview with uh, our great colleague uh, mess eberhardt and uh Miguel, i have to admit every time i i um talk to mess for like 15 20 minutes i feel like such a boomer <laughs> um lots of of um words i don't understand and um it kind of puzzles me how the future will look uh, after, but I mean, that's um, why we hired him. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, to, to, to become a bit wiser, and uh, um, I guess the future is here in many ways. But Miguel, let's talk about the present yeah. <laughs> instead, uh, because when we look at the European um, efforts to support Ukraine, they will all obviously also impact uh, the outlook for the European Central Bank, uh, the outlook for European debt markets, um, and so on and so forth. 
Denmark took a decision to pledge uh, support for Ukraine over the next 10 years. We also saw a decision taken in Sweden lately. Um, but what about the rest of the European Union? I mean, we don't see the same momentum, do we? In some parts, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, in what we could call Central and Eastern Europe, the support for Ukraine is still huge. Um, they already ramped up their military budgets years ago uh, and are continuing to do so. Poland, for uh, example. Poland, especially, yeah. yes. Yeah. The Czech Republic, the Baltic countries. Uh, what we're seeing in what we could call Western and Southern Europe is, uh, with a few exceptions, still perhaps not moves to pledge too much support to Ukraine, but still moves towards huge rearmament packages. And uh, that's the UK, that's France, that's Germany, that's Belgium, all across the place. Uh, and much of that is, of course, through government borrowing. Uh, I mean, mm. and not, not very many of these countries have, have the sort of uh, fiscal surplus that we, that we have in, uh, in Scandinavia. Uh, so so there's a huge rearmament wave going on in Europe. It will continue. Uh, uh, a lot of this is, 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 is related to Ukraine, yes, but it's more related to the general threat from Russia. So uh, so even if there is some solution to the Ukraine war of, or, or, or that, we will still see continued rearmament throughout Europe. Basically, uh, the lesson that should have been learned either in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea or when Trump was, was president first, the, the, the lesson that Europe needs to take care of its own security has finally sunk in and, and that, that costs a lot of money. It, feel, it feels kind of inappropriate to wear a, a T-shirt <laughs> saying "Milk cows, not taxpayers" when we're discussing this. Yeah, uh, it's it's not on purpose. It, it, I just wear this quite often because I, yeah, to a certain extent, hate paying taxes. <laughs> Never mind, Mikkel. Um, if we look at uh, the European Central Bank, the discussion on whether this spending on the warfare essentially will impact interest rates. Um, we had a very very interesting um, article written by. Will Dudley, um, the former uh, president of the uh, New York Fed, as far as I remember, in the U.S. So he referred to the uh, so-called R-star, um, so the equilibrium interest rate in the U.S. economy. Uh, and he discussed in this piece whether the R-star was much higher than, than anticipated by anyone due to the almost perpetual large deficits of the United States. Uh, and I guess it's fair to to say that uh, the fiscal picture has changed quite dramatically since 2020. Um, we've basically opened a can of worms um, in relation to, to a budget deficits in the US, but also elsewhere. Um, and e I mean, even in <laughs> the <laughs> mother of fiscal conservatism, uh, Germany, Uh, we now have ongoing discussions on how to get around the so-called Schwarzenegger uh, policies. Uh, how how can they? The politicians are discussing how to spend without actually uh, breaching the covenants in the uh, in the constitution. Um, so this is something that will impact uh, monetary policy as well. We're in, stuck in this weird situation with extremely easy fiscal policy and monetary policy that has to sort of pull the uh, <laughs> the, the overall policy mix in the other direction. Absolutely. And we're looking at, uh, not as much the US, but if you're looking at EU politically, we're looking at two crises right now that the EU is trying to solve. There's a security crisis, which is solved by buying weapons, so spending a lot of public money. There's a climate crisis, which is still even, we don't talk too much about it, but it's still a very huge political uh, uh, subject within the EU, which is also solved by public spending for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that those two crises are so important politically that it, it sort of supersedes all other requirements. We used to have what we call the convergency criteria, which was supposed to keep 
keep uh, what was uh, basically a German invention to keep the other Euro countries in check and EU countries in check to not spend too much uh, or, or not, not not to 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 have too much. Uh, government borrowing that's basically out of the place and has been since corona yeah. so 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 now we have uh, uh, the solution to all these crises is government spending and that's what we're going to get yeah if we look at a now cast on european inflation uh, we obviously have the numbers upcoming from uh, germany spain etc this week um our now cast is printing at roughly 0.3 percent month on month for the euro area aggregate um that's not a perfect number for the European Central Bank. Uh, but if you look at the 0.3% uh, monthly inflation in February, if we're right, relative to what happened a year ago, um, we're talking about major progress. Um, inflation in February 23 was around 0.8% across Europe. Uh, so from a base effect perspective, we'll get much closer to the 2% uh target for the European Central Bank. But we, we truly need some surprises on the low side uh, for inflation now for the European Central Bank to become comfortable cutting with cutting interest rates. Uh, we had the Austrian member Holzmann uh, out on Friday saying that, well, uh, Ceteris Par Paribus, uh, he, he couldn't really envis envisage a scenario where the European Central Bank moved ahead of the Fed. Um, and this is one of the topics that uh, we've discussed over and over in this podcast. Because why can't the European Central Bank move ahead of the Fed? I mean, it's it's like it's like it's just a decision that they've taken. Uh, no matter whether the situation warrants another stance, they're, they're like, well, we'll we'll have to wait for Big Brother. Um, I I get goosebumps in a negative sense when I uh, listen to such nonsense. But um, it's 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 apparently a view that is well represented within the Seriously. committee. Um, so. We'll have to wait and see what happens in Washington, uh, and then we'll take a decision from there. That's basically what they're yeah. saying. Um, I think it's it's hard to to cheer on on such um, uh, stupidity, but um, never nevertheless, we need a very soft inflation number this week to bring an April cut back in play in Europe. Uh, we're we're clearly leaning towards a softer print than consensus out there. Um, if you want access to our now costs and our um, inflation expectations, etc., then uh, go to stenoresearch.com and uh, and find the now costs, etc. Mikkel, ultimately, we always promise our audience that we will discuss actionable content on how to trade all of this. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess, given this cocktail of Russian um, progress in Ukraine, the need to throw more money at the problem. Uh, both in Europe, but also in the US. Um, the timing of buying bonds here on sort of a trend basis is not particularly good. Um, with larger deficits, uh, with some signs of inflation flaring up in the US, we've covered that over and over over the past couple of weeks. Um, fixed income is not is not your bet. Um, at least you need to be very selective on, on which curves to, to buy. Uh, Europe could be a, a decent buy here, but not the US, if you ask us. But what about the Chinese rate cuts, the signs of pro-cyclicality in the economy uh, with loads of spending coming in? Um, seems like the economy is actually gathering pace here in sharp contrast to what you would have expected a year ago. Um, I guess you need to buy raw materials. Absolutely. It's yeah. construction and production. I mean, with, yeah. that's 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 going to be the, be, be, be the big theme. It's, it's already in the U.S. It's going to be in the U.S. as well. Um we're going to be building a lot of weapons, going to be constructing a lot of solar panels and, and windmills, and we all know where that points to. Yeah. China. 
Yeah, it points to China and it points to uh, copper. Um, it might even point to natural gas, yeah. the good old widowmaker. Um, so in full transparency, we're now along the nat gas trade. Um, and uh, let's see whether I need to file for a divorce in a couple of months. <laughs> I guess that's um, that's kind of <laughs> the ultimate yeah, downside yeah, I mean, here. Uh, but nat gas looks extremely cheap relative yeah. to the business cycle here. Um, but we have abundance of supply right now, um, basically to very warm weather, uh, weather um, in uh, in the US for most part of the winter. Um, and then, um, well, the supply side is actually doing better than feared. Uh, but we're now clearly below break-even levels um, for, for the price of, of natural gas. So uh, I guess we'll see more or less mayhem on the supply side if, if those levels continue. Ultimately, Mikkel, let me say that um, the rate cuts seen in China, it will provide some temporary relief in local Chinese assets. I still prefer to trade China by proxy uh, due to all of the political risks surrounding uh, owning uh, mainland Chinese uh, assets. So we're long Korea uh, as a proxy Chinese bet. We're long copper as a Chinese proxy bet because there are signs of improving sentiment in China now from abysmal levels, mm. uh, I have to admit. But... Um, I guess the rate of change, the sequential move, is now towards slightly more positive trends out of China. That's kind of my vibe now. Sounds realistic. Mm. Korea would be a good bet for that. Could be other countries out there as well, but that's, yeah. uh, that's a safe one, actually. Mikkel, now that we've talked about the actionable content, um, we need our disclaimer. <laughs> and um, uh, as per usual, we've hired uh, the Italian football player, Gennaro Gattuso, to deliver the best disclaimer on earth now that we talk trade ideas. So our trade ideas might be... Sometimes it may be good, sometimes it may be shit. Thank you to Dinaro Gattuso. Uh, he's actually been laid off over the past week, as far as I remember, right? <laughs> yeah. In, uh, as, a, as a coach for Marseille. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's uh, true, that's true. So um, yeah, we'll send him our condolences. Um, and uh, <laughs> Mikkel, thanks for joining us as well. Pleasure. And uh, thanks for listening or, um, or tuning in out there. Remember that you can find our free newsletter, uh, and the link is in the description below. Uh, we'll send you a uh, slide deck on how to trade this cyclical upswing in the global economy as um, a a, a free addition to this newsletter um, or else go to stenoresearch.com we always have 14 days of free trial if you want to check out our outcasts our trade ideas and our portfolios thank you for watching and listening and we'll be back again next Sunday bye